0: Welcome back to 1 Samuel this morning. Um, we're in 1 Samuel 12, and it is coronation time. So out there down the street, it is Jubilee time, but in here, in 1 Samuel 12, it is coronation time. Look at chapter 11, verse 14. 11:14 14, Samuel said to the people, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. And all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king. In the presence of the Lord, so it's like a coronation, but unusually for a coronation, there is also a retirement speech. Now that doesn't normally happen at coronations, whether you know the previous for good reasons, the previous monarch is not normally available to to say a few words. But Samuel, as the outgoing judge and leader, is going to just you know say a few careful things, and then Saul will really be able to get going as king, which. Um, makes what actually happens in chapter twelve just a bit weird, doesn't it? If that's what we're here for, if this is about making Saul king, shouldn't um, well, shouldn't he have a bigger role? You can imagine maybe Saul checking down the running order for the day. Uh, you know, say, okay, well, um, yeah, no, first speech from Samuel. Okay, that's all right. I guess he is the prophet. It does go on a bit, but no, yeah, go on. He can speak. And um, good idea. Then a speech from the people. Well, all right. You know, they can. Um, they can say how, how good I am as king or something. Then a big thunderstorm. Slightly strange. And then the people again. And then a, a national act of repentance. It's a bit, bit odd. And then, and then Samuel again. And then we all go home. Can you imagine Saul saying, is there, um, <laughs> is there a page missing here? Um, shouldn't, shouldn't I say something or do something, anything really, or get made king in some way? It's very strange. In fact, it's even weirder than that because Saul is mentioned and he is mentioned as the thing that the people did wrong. So verse 19, the great act of national repentance, the people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die for we have added to our other sins the evil of asking for a king. What's going on? Well, what's going on is that this is not a handover. Yes, Samuel is stepping down, but the real king of the people is not, cannot, and has no intention of going anywhere. Look at verse 12. This is the background. When you saw Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was king even though the Lord your God was king. So what I want to do is is run us through the, the story that we've got here. It'll take just over 10 minutes. And as I go, let me give you two questions to be thinking about. So first one, why was it so wrong for them to ask for a king? Why was that so wrong? And as we go through the story, I think you'll see why it was so wrong. But then if it was so wrong, second question, why leave Saul in place? Why not get rid of him if it was such a bad thing? So Uh, turn back to page uh, 281, and Samuel starts off with a conversation about himself, the previous king, or the previous leader and judge, and whether he has done anything wrong. Here I stand, testify against me. It's a kind of final audit on the Samuel years. But then he does the same thing with God. Verse 7. Now then, stand here, Because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. It's one thing if Samuel didn't do anything wrong, but actually with God, it's much more important. So we're going to audit the record in office of God as king, and we're going to see that he has always been good to you. So what we have is Samuel, the last of the judges, telling them the story of the last few hundred years, of the period of the judges. So he um, starts when they were slaves in Egypt, verse 8, they cried out and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron to deliver them. And that bit has become a pattern. They cry out and the Lord sends someone to deliver them. But the pattern of rescue, that's been needed because they keep abandoning God. There's a whole pattern here. In fact, it's it's like a series of cycles or spirals going down and down and down. So verse 9, they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the Philistines and the king of Moab who fought against them. In Israel, the arrival of an enemy, that is not a sign that God has let them down, it's actually part of his righteous act. It's in the, the the list of things God did that were right. See, Israel were, were always too small and too weak to hold the land alone in her own strength. The, the whole thing only works if God keeps fighting for them. This people, they only exist if God, if you like, continually generates their existence and their safety. But when they rebel against God, they lose that safety, that protection, And so he allows an invasion. Now, remember, this is a unique situation. We can't make any deductions from this to invasions today and what God may or may not be doing in them. This is for one nation directly created and ruled by God. An invasion means that God is responding in righteousness to their rebellion. But each time we go around the cycle, there comes a point where the people cry out to the Lord, verse 10 and said, we have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, but now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. And and every single time, God had done the same thing he did in Egypt. Jeroboam, who you may know as Gideon, uh, Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, every single time he heard them and delivered them and they lived in safety. Now that is what makes the request for a king so wrong. Verse 12 is is very strange. There's another invasion. Scary. Nahash the eye gouger. We met him two weeks ago. Um, This invasion, it will as well be caused by the rebellion of the people. So they are the problem, not God. Um, They know that now after 12 times around this cycle. And the answer, they know that as well. The answer is God. Repent and cry out to him. They know that. After 12 times around the cycle, he is good. He has only ever been good to them. But this time, verse 12, they reject God as the solution. Verse 12, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. So actually, this time it is worse than all the other rebellions. Do you see why it's so wrong? The the whole cause of the rebellion was trying to fit in with the people of the land. Worshipping the Baals and the Asherahs, that is assimilation. It's about joining in with the fertility religions of Canaan, as if Baal could help them. Baal will bring them bigger harvests. And, and normally, fear had brought them to their senses. When there's an invasion, fear had brought them to their senses. But this time, on the, the downslope, they take a step further To becoming just like the other nations. Do you remember chapter 8, verse 19? We want a king over us, then we shall be like all the other nations. It's It's a shocking wrong decision. And it's at that point in the proceedings that Samuel points at Saul. So remember Saul, he's kind of sitting up on the front somewhere at his coronation, he thinks, kind of, Uh, He's the one sitting on the throne. He's the one they're all talking about. And Samuel says, your greatest act of rebellion was asking for a king. Literally points at Saul, verse 13. Now here is the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. And that's when we see how good God is, how merciful God is. Because 1 Samuel 12 is a chapter all about second chances. You rebelled, you rejected God. Now here is your king. Is that the end of you? Well, no. Verse 14. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. It's a second chance. Even after asking for a king, one more appeal to follow God. And you'd think after um, all they've been through with the cycles, you'd think that would be enough and they just ask, but um, God follows it up with a miracle to bring them to their senses. And uh, the miracle, I think, lands strangely for English ears particularly. Verse 16, Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. And the great thing is thunder and rain. And I think we misunderstand that. Um, It's not that they're primitive people and they don't understand where where thunder and lightning comes from. It's also... um, it's not um, normal to have rain then. We, um, we're looking forward to a bank holiday weekend coming up, aren't we? So one thing we know for certain, yeah, there will be thunderstorms and heavy rain. There always is any point of the year in England could come. But um, this is wheat harvest, which in Israel means there should be no rain. Um, not only is there thunder and rain, but the prophet is able to announce something like a day in advance, exactly when it will come. And it is thunder and rain so great that it threatens their economy and their survival. So this is not a a bit of gentle rain to um, help the garden. This is devastating to the crops. So again, in the same way that as uh, the wheat ripens in Ukraine under embargo and with uh, in a war zone, and the world wonders when it will next eat, Same thing here. If this rainstorm persists, then there will be no harvest, no food, and no nation. So, again, at decision point for them, God underlines that their existence depends on this relationship between them and Him as their king. This is a a God generated nation. Their survival depends on Him. They have no future without Him. And finally, we've been waiting since chapter 8. Finally, they do turn back to God. They turn back. They see what they've done wrong. We have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. And they ask Samuel to pray for them, to ask for God's forgiveness. And because God is the God of second chances, what are the first words out of Samuel's mouth? Do not be afraid. Verse 20, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, but now start again. Don't turn away from God, but serve him with all your heart. Don't turn after the useless idols. They can do you no good. They're, they're not the good king that they already have. They can't rescue you. They are useless. And 22, so we know that their survival depends on God. But verse 22 tells us that God is determined to have them. It's an extraordinary thing. It's why the nation has survived so long through all those hundred years of Old Testament history. It's why the church, God's people after Jesus, have survived for so long. It's why um, you and I can come back to God today, uh, as long as it is called today, the New Testament says. Uh, it's because, verse 22, it's for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. And that that is what renews the kingship. It's because the, the true king, the God king, offers them a second chance and they take it. And so he forgives them as they turn back to him and Samuel will pray for them and will teach them how to follow God, verse 23, and we'll see how they do later in the book. Okay, that's the story that we've got in front of us. God's not going anywhere um, if they turn their back on him, then, uh, then there's uh, no way they can exist. But if they turn back to him, well, they can go on being his people. He is still their real king. That's why it was so wrong. But second question was, why leave Saul in place if it was wrong? And uh, what I want to do, I've got two applications for us. The first one's about God and the second one's about Saul. And that's where we'll begin answering that question. So first application... Uh, is that God is king. God is king to his people. Um, And I guess that comes obviously out of what Samuel said to them that day, but that has not changed. That relationship to God, it has not changed between Old Testament and New Testament. God's people today, the worldwide church, we have God as our king today. And our God is the same good God as he was then. His record now over thousands of years is righteous every time. That cycle of rebellion from us, but mercy from him, that has gone round again and again and again, and still God does not change. And his offer of a second chance, his call back to our senses and back to him, that is still available today. And in the the life and the death of Jesus, we see that most fully and most perfectly. And the the connections have not changed. So the connection between our existence and that relationship with God as our king, that has not changed. God the king generates his people. We cannot exist without him. And turning away to follow other gods or other kings that promise greater profits or greater safety, that is just spiritual self-harm. They're useless. They can do us no good. And any um, particular church or the um, the church globally will only keep existing if it keeps coming back to God in repentance and faith. We only exist because he, our king, is pleased to make us his own. And um, those ideas, that package of ideas of, of God the king who is good and God the king who generates his people's existence, who creates safety and prosperity, those were just the, the normal brag and boast of monarchy at the time. So the the pharaohs in Egypt or the the great kings of all the empires around Israel, they all made the same boast. But Israel has a supernatural king, a king who made the heavens and the earth. So in him, uniquely, all of the boasts are true. That's why king was such a well-chosen illustration for the nature of our relationship to God at the time. But I wonder today, um, even in Jubilee Week, so even, I guess, at the, the very fever pitch of um, uh, monarchistic feeling, uh, even as the bunting is hanging down the street for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, uh, monarchy today may not help us as much as it helped them in terms of understanding God. Because the idea of monarchy has, has traveled a very long journey since Samuel used it as a a good illustration for how it is between us and God. So what we need to do, we need to allow God, through Samuel, to tell us what kind of king he is and what kind of people we are. So the the goodness, the, the existence generating is here, but I think so too is the one that we struggle with more, which is the idea of obedience. Um, Queen Elizabeth II, she doesn't demand obedience in quite the same way that a Bible times king would have done. And I wonder, is this the part of the illustration that we just, many of us, quietly forget on the journey from Samuel to the second millennium? God is king. He's my king. He's your king. And Samuel uses words like fear and serve and obey, all three words in verse 14. And their opposites show up as well. Verse 15, rebel or do not obey. And, and those words, they are essential to a relationship with a king. And most Christians would agree that serving God is essential. And many Christians would, would agree, yes, okay, fear is part of humility, that respect and that awe that God deserves. But Samuel insists on obey as well. Fear, serve, and obey. And do not rebel against his commands. Every time that God speaks, my king is speaking. And if I do not obey, then I am in rebellion. And the Bible knows that that is complicated and that is difficult. Uh, The Bible is full of psalms that ask questions or ask why is it so hard. The the Bible is full of prayers for help with temptation and for the strength and the power to obey God and full, as we've seen, of second chances for those who disobey God. But nowhere is the, the basic relationship changed. Always in Old and in New Testament, God can tell me what to do. Obedience is required. It's profoundly essential, and it creates our very existence. But um, the moment we step outside this building, and certainly tomorrow, every second at your desk or behind the wheel, our our modern world just makes it very hard to see obedience as a good thing. We're we're conditioned, aren't we, to independence, to rebellion against authority. We could have God maybe as guide, as friend, Um, referee, maybe we could cope with that. But God as king, so that's the first application. God is not, will not, cannot step off his throne. Um, The bit of the kingdom that may need renewing is us. Do we see God as king? Um, Do we see obedience as simply the way it is between him and me? Um, Is this where the reality of our existence as the people of God generated from? Um, Am I nothing as a rebel and everything as a subject? Okay, God is king. Now, how about Saul? Uh, Second, Saul is in the way. Um, Now, over the next few chapters, I hope that we'll enjoy Saul. I hope we'll um, love him feel sympathy for him and get to know him. Uh, Over the next few chapters, Saul will be very, very human. He will show us how hard it is to obey God. Uh, We'll see how good, well-intentioned people can end up um, proudly taking God's place. And Saul, he will illustrate the battle in our own hearts. But he is never going to be simply an example human being, never simply just another Israelite because Saul is the king now. Um, It's an extraordinary chapter, chapter 12, isn't it? There's this national repentance. We're we're sorry we ever asked for a king, but here he is. And Saul has been inserted between the people and God. Um, He is literally in the way. There's God the king, then Saul the king, and then the people. And that could be a, a good thing. We said back in chapter eight, it's actually what the the book of Judges, with all the cycles, is what they cried out for. That we need, um, instead of each one of us doing what is right in our own eyes, we need someone to do better than that, someone to lead and rule the people. And Saul, he, um, well, he's a lot better than we thought he might be. Um, back in chapter eight, they just wanted someone impressive. Uh, like the other nations, and Saul can do that. He's big and he's tall. But uh, Tobias has shown us over the last few weeks that Saul is actually nothing like the kings of the other nations. He's nothing like Nahash or Sisera. He's so much better. In fact, what Saul is is a um, a mixture some of what they wanted and some of the weaknesses that go with that, but also some humility. And God has been changing him. God has been giving him his spirit. And in all of this, God is trying to teach them what kind of king they really need. So here is Saul, the the mixture king. Will he do? Will he do? If a human being is going to stand between us and God and lead us, then the most important thing he needs to understand is that God is king over him. And we saw with Eli in chapters one to seven that the human being will try and glorify themselves in pride and be the human being in the way, try and replace God. Um, and we've seen a bit that that can be a problem for the people as well. Um, it may seem very obvious some of the time that there's a difference between a human leader and God. But actually when they're afraid... When they're in need, what they want is a human being. They're quite quick to make Saul the one that will keep them safe. And there's a danger in that, the danger of being a rival to God, getting in the way of the relationship that is essential. And so in 1 Samuel 12, all of that danger, all of those problems, focuses in sharply just on the question of obedience. A humble king will obey God. And a rebellious king will not. Uh, Verse 14 is addressed to the people and their king. If both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you. See, they're they're committed now to a relationship with a human king. And this one human will now drive their obedience or disobedience. So we're going to leave Saul in place, but it will only be okay if he obeys God. And in the next three chapters, Saul is going to continue to surprise us, I think, on the upside. He really isn't a terrible man or a terrible king yet. His intentions, they are mixed, but they're good. And the problems he faces, they're huge. And our sympathies, as I say, are with him. But what he just won't do is obey God. Um, not consistently, not all the time, not like God actually had the right to tell him what to do. And we've, um, we've said in this series that the main applications of this are not actually about secular politicians over nation-states today. This isn't about Boris or Vladimir or Joe. Um, this is about the people of God. This is about the danger of human leaders in churches about bishops and preachers and vicars. And I thought I'd show you James 3 from the New Testament, where James says that not many should become teachers. Why? Because we, he includes himself, we who teach will be judged more strictly. Why? Well, he goes on to say because people who teach are like the rudder on a large ship or like the spark that starts a forest fire. Um, do you see Saul? Saul, he will steer the nation now. Um, how's that going to go? This this mixture man, will this do? Will he do? Which comes back to what kind of leader we should want. Um, they wanted someone tall who could make them feel safe. Whereas 1 Samuel 12 says they need someone to help them obey God. Someone to help them be the subjects of a good king and God, because obedience is the only place of real safety. It's a a challenge, isn't it, to what we normally look for? Um, Imagine the the job advert, um, Bishop wanted, uh, uh, Bishop wanted to call us to repentance and make us obey everything the Lord God has commanded. Imagine if that was the top agenda of every senior church leader in the country. Or new vicar want it to show us our sin and teach us obedience. Um, that isn't quite what it said on the um, the profile that it was in the advert that I responded to to come here. Or um, imagine a conversation with a friend. There's this new preacher on the internet. You should listen to them. Oh, okay, well, what's good about them? Oh, well, he really obeys God all the time. Is that how the conversations go? So that's what we need. And then here is Saul um, sitting at the front. Now, here is the king that you have chosen, or um, any one of the flawed people who lead churches. Do we feel the challenge and feel the danger? Or should we pray to our God and King? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are King, that no one can remove you from your throne. And thank you that you are the good God of generous second chances. And we ask, Father, as we turn to you today, that you would give us hearts to follow, to serve, and to obey you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.